We're happy to welcome back to the show, Kaz Nicolescu, who will be discussing technology choices made by Brex as it continues to scale at an incredible pace. Jeff and Kaz discuss programming languages, databases, performance bottlenecks, and much more in this episode. As a reminder, Kaz is the CTO of Brex, where they are building an integrated financial platform to empower both finance teams and employees to make their business run faster. Kaz, welcome back to the show. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me again. Last time we talked about an overview of some of the systems that you've built at Brex, and I wanted to to start by going a little bit deeper into some of the choices of a technology for the stack. So I want to just start with database, basically. So when you think about the high volume of transactions that are stored across a credit card platform, there's lots of lots and lots and lots of transactions. And in some cases, they have to be accessed with pretty quick latency, in some cases, not as sensitive. I want to know about your choice of storage for those transaction records, because I could see cases where you would want them to be stored in a transactional database and other cases where maybe you would want to just put them in, you know, giant parquet files. Tell me about the choice of storage for credit card transactions. Yeah, so we chose SQL for that. Specifically, we're using RDS uh, with MySQL. And there's a couple of reasons that we did that. Number one was that we wanted something that's like reliable, proven, etc. and scales. And obviously, both MySQL and Postgres can scale quite a lot. The second uh, reason why we wanted with the SQL technology was that we wanted to have local consistency. And this is where I think a lot of companies tend to bias on consistency in different extremes. So for example, some companies are like, we don't care about consistency because we have an SOA architecture and so SQL doesn't help. The other argument is like, I want to enforce global consistency through SQL and it creates bottlenecks. We wanted to have local consistency within different systems. So we don't have a shared database. Every system, every service has its own database. Within that system, though, it is important to have consistency. And if you don't have a transactional store, then you end up having to do it yourself where you enter a transaction and then things related to that transaction in different operations. And you need to make sure that there's a consistency there. Otherwise, you have to deal with it asynchronously. And so when a particular gRPC call comes in, we will make sure that it gets saved consistently within a service. We then have a message bus that's through Kafka where we publish particular events, different services can subscribe to those and asynchronously process those and then locally store them within their own SQL database. And then for anything that requires synchronous validation, there's subsequent gRPC calls that we make between services. What do you mean by synchronous validation here? I mean, if a transaction enters the Brex system, isn't that a valid transaction? So for example, a risk check would be something that we would validate synchronously. So if a transaction comes in and we want to basically validate that it's not fraudulent activity, we take a lot of the metadata that comes in with that transaction. And rather than having it through any synchronous event where we can process it later, we need to do that synchronously so we know whether to accept or decline the transaction. There's very few of those calls. Another example would be around account validity. So if your account got suspended, for example, 
the, the suspension of accounts happens asynchronously in nature because they're attached to so many systems. And so there are a certain amount of checks in different more critical flows where we want to make sure that it's not something that's been suspended. So in general, we try to minimize those as much as possible and primarily focus on building this asynchronously. So for example, if we have to send you an SMS, a push notification, if we have to take additional actions, if we have to update risk models, all those happen asynchronously via message bus. You mentioned a risk check there. So I don't know that much about credit card risk infrastructure. To what extent is the risk or the the fraud analysis handled by the underlying credit card network like Visa or MasterCard? And to what extent is it is it handled by the actual branded credit card? So in a transaction flow, you have three main uh, parties. You have the acquiring processor, so someone like Stripe, for example. You have the network, Visa, MasterCard, American Express. And then you have the issuing bank, which in this case would be Brex. The first party, so the acquiring processor, and the third party, which is the issuing bank, generally take uh, the risk in different scenarios. The networks, Visa or MasterCard, predominantly uh, facilitate the networking or the routing for that. So when the transaction comes in, MasterCard or a role in this case, since Visa, Brex cards are MasterCard, will route the transaction to Brex. It is Brex's responsibility to approve or decline that transaction. As a result, we are the ones who take the risk. So if we approve transactions that then turn out to be fraudulent, that's on Brex to do. What the networks do uh, in terms of involvement for fraud is both on the issuing side and the acquiring side is look at the thresholds. So if an acquiring processor has too much fraud, i.e. chargebacks, that will go against them. And over time, the networks will basically come down on them. And similarly, if an issuing bank basically has too much fraud, then similarly, over time, there's a discussion what you can be part of the network. But they don't take the risk. So the, the risk is pushed to Brex. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for that slight digression. <laughs> no, all good. Okay, so you talked about the database. And you also mentioned Kafka there. So what's the life cycle for data stored in Kafka? Like, do you just, is there some default that you adhere to in terms of how long you leave data in Kafka? And, you know, what's the protocol for how different systems utilize Kafka? So Kafka has two different modes of configuration, at least once delivery or at most once delivery. And so we basically have at least once. So each system has to deal with duplicated data because otherwise you reach a bunch of different scale issues. And so there's item potency built in so that we know if we've seen an event or not seen an event. The second choice that you have or we made is between reference data versus actual data. And so in the case of Brex, we chose to have reference data. So we have all the IDs and we store any data that is pertinent to that particular event to help with any replayability that we might need in the future. Which brings us to the last point. One of the challenges is once you've consumed an event that you have to then replay because maybe you had corrupt data, maybe something happened and you have to rebuild. And so we have the capability to replay events, which you can go and configure. And so when that happens, Kafka has no idea necessarily which system has to replay them. So they replace the event. The systems that don't care about it can discard it because you can have item potency. And then the system that does need it in that case would know how to replay it. And it knows you end up building custom logic for that. So that, for example, if I have to know whether I need to resend a communication or not, 
it really depends. In some cases, you might have to. In some cases, you might not. And so you end up building custom logic for that particular. We, we use migration terminology. So whether it's a database migration or a service migration. And so you'll end up building a custom migration where it's like, I know that I need to do this in this particular case and how to handle that particular replayability scenario. But it allows us to kind of bring back, it's kind of like an eventual consistency model where we can recreate the world as needed. And then those events actually don't remember exactly. There's also a, a limit to replayability. I want to say it was 90 days, but don't quote me on that one. Have you ever had to run that world recreation operation? We have. It goes back to whenever we've encountered certain bugs. So if you have a bug in your system and then you realize like, oh, like I have a bunch of data that's now stored that's in consistent manner, you have the option to basically correct it within the database. But then it's really tricky because if you have subsequent events that you publish, now you have to reach eventual consistency through the rest of the world. So to the extent that you have to fix something just within your system and no one else cares, we just do a database migration, we fix it up. To the extent that it's a business logic change and impacts both yours and dependent services, we end up doing it through replayability of events such that the rest of the world can know about those as well. So imagine that you want to change the state on an account because of different events that have happened. You can change the state on your account very easily in the database. You can do a simple update query where you have whatever criteria you want to do for selection of the subset of data and whatever the new state is. The challenge is whenever you do that, there are other side effects from that particular change. So we might send some communication. We might want to disable or change the state in other systems. And so either we would have a bunch of different database migrations that all have to do the same thing, or we basically do it in a single place where we replay that. If we change that logic, we replay the event, and then the rest of the world ends up getting to be eventually consistent because it's as if you're processing things for the first time. When you have a really, really large Kafka cluster, are there any issues that you encounter that you do not encounter at smaller scale? I haven't haven't really done any shows where we went deeper on the scalability concerns of a large Kafka cluster. I mean, you end up having scale issues just like anything else storage-related, to be honest. So you'll end up having event delays if you don't shard and configure Kafka properly, those tend to be to be the main ones. We've also had some issues that we had to deal with in terms of tooling that we built on top of Kafka, such that you can like search for events, configure them, etc. And then it's less about scale; it's mostly about how do you visualize such a large scope. Because if I just want to uh, go through those, it's just like a large number of events. Most of those have pretty good documentation in terms of like how do you set up your Kafka to scale and it has to do with like topic configuration. So we generally tend to be pretty thoughtful about what's a topic and at what level do we have it because if you end up having the explosion of that, then you end up having issues there. And then the other one that we have is mostly less about Kafka in particular uh, in terms of technology, but more about like how you process events. When again, you start having these dependencies where event A comes in and that triggers event B and C and D. And again, there's no guaranteeing of ordering with Kafka. And so you might end up having events that come out of order and you have to get the systems to handle those well. And the thing that happens at scales is you just have more likelihood of those scenarios to pop in. And if you have any kind of bugs or you're not handling that properly, it's more likely to materialize. So that one's less about a pure Kafka scale, but it is an engineering challenge for scaling when you're increasing probabilities of something bad happening. It's kind of the same thing with databases. Like you can scale databases up, 
and by yourself some amount of time where you don't have issues. And at some point you start having other types of issues and then you scale it up again and you're fine until obviously you can't scale up anymore. And it just increases the probability of something happening. If you take the example of database locks, you can have the wrong locking strategy. And when you have a small number of transactions volume on that particular database or that particular table, you're probably not going to hit any race conditions where multiple processes want to acquire the lock. But the larger you are, the more likely that is to happen up until you get to a point where it happens on every single call. So that's kind of the same thing with Kafka, where you're just increasing the probability for for that to happen. As the span of different platforms that you've developed has grown, you know, at this point you've got the credit card system, expense tracking, spend management. There's a lot of different elements to the platform at this point. To what extent have you standardized the engineering process? Like, do you have uh, strong dictums around, you know, tests or choice of continuous delivery system or choice of container deployment system? Do you have Brex CLI? What kind of stuff have you standardized on? We do in general, the infrastructure is standardized. And so we do have a standardized CI pipeline. We do have a Brex CLI. We do have a container strategy. We do have basically like everybody uses kind of the same GitHub account with multiple repositories. So in general, we standardize infrastructure pretty heavily. The reason for that is because you get economies of scale and it helps both with internal mobility and in terms of scale, like technical scale. So for example, if every team gets to choose its own database technology, then it's harder for engineers when they move from one one team to another, they have to learn potentially a new technology. So that makes it harder. Same with language choice, right? Like if every team chooses its own language, yes, you can do it if you have uh, services and everybody talks gRPC, but then if you move teams, obviously you have to learn that. The second one is then about shared components, libraries. Uh, How do you do logging consistently? How do you do access control, et cetera, where if every team ends up choosing their own infrastructure for that, then it becomes pretty challenging to kind of get that at scale. And the third one is in terms of expertise, where if I bring in a new technology, then is every team going to have a database expert on their team for whatever technology they choose and, and so on and so forth. And so I found it useful to, to standardize on those. At the same time, I'm a big believer that you should have a small number of tools that solve the problem the best way. So we don't have a single language at Brex. We have different languages that we use for different scenarios. Because we know that uh, there's a difference. So, like, we use Python on the data side. We use Kotlin uh, predominantly now on the back end. We use uh, TypeScript React on the front end. And so we try to use the best technology that we have. We use Go on the, on the infrastructure side. Similar with databases, like I said, RDS is predominantly used across the stack. There's a place where we have a graph database because that has been uh, useful in terms of, like, roles and permissions and access control. And so we do introduce new technologies, but when we do that, we basically say, okay, we're going to introduce technology for this particular scenario, and then it becomes a supported technology for these scenarios. So it's not that anybody can potentially just go and use it just because it's there. If someone wants to write a business logic service in Python, they wouldn't be able to do that. They shouldn't do that, and so the guidelines are there to help them with that. The other aspect of consistency is around processes. And this is where I typically tend to think about as interfaces. So we don't force every team to do scrum planning the same way. Some teams might use uh, one week. Some teams might use two weeks. Some teams might have multiple sprints. Some teams might have a single sprint. 
some of these might not do any sprints at all because they're just getting started and they're, they're very small. So it really depends. Uh, it's more about the interface. So we have a planning cycle across the company. We have weekly updates that teams publish to the rest of the company across the different teams. And so we try to find like, what are the things that really matter in terms of like broader communication versus enforcing that every team must do something a certain way. Because I don't find that particularly useful and having that flexibility makes sense. So we try to find the balance rather than being too extreme on, on one way or the other. You've done uh, engineering at several companies before, and this is your first CTO role. I'm curious if there's, you know, we, we talked a little bit last time, you've worked at Stripe and talked a little bit about the differences between Brex and Stripe in the last episode. I am curious if there's any major distinctions that you've seen in terms of emergent characteristics of Brex engineering that might not be obvious from the outside. Like if I if I look at it from the outside, you know, it seems like you could manage Brex in, in many ways, the same that you would manage Stripe. Are there any peculiarities that are either emergent or planned that have stood out as kind of distinguishing the company in terms of how you operate it? I would say there's probably two two main things if I compare. So I was it's right before and before that at Microsoft. In terms of both Microsoft and Stripe, they were very much in office. Both companies were distributed as in they had multiple offices. But for the most part, even though you had some people who were remote, the culture was very much in the office. Your team is there. Most of the leadership team is in a single office. There's an HQ, etc. For Brex, we were going on the trajectory that we had uh, similar to Stripe, where it's predominantly in distributed offices and you can have some folks remote. And COVID obviously happened and it, it forced everybody to be remote. And early on, we had really good conversations about what do we want that to be long term? We realized that COVID isn't going to be something that's a few months, probably going to be like one or even more years long. And it turned out to be the case. And so what we realized is that if that's true, then we have to make the company work in a remote world. There's no option. We have to invest in making remote great. And once you do that, the advantages of being remote first, in my opinion, outweigh it, especially for something that's not super early stage. If I were to give advice to someone getting the company off the ground, I would probably say you and your co-founder or co-founders should start in person and plan to be remote. But early on, I would say there's enough value of being all in one office and, and having that sort of collaboration. But once the company gets to be over a few people that actually think going remote is more advantageous. And that was something that I've never done before where like the entire company and the entire national organization ends up being fully remote. And it went through two iterations. The first iteration was everybody's remote and isolated at home. And you have to deal not just with figuring out communication, decision-making, et cetera, but also the psychology of it, where you go to waves. Like initially people are like, great, I don't have to commit to work. Then they're like, oh, I feel really lonely and isolated. And then they're like, oh, I'm not really set up to work from home because I never planned for that. And so I just work for the kitchen counter and that's it's hurting my back and it's not great. And basically going through the evolution of like, how do we actually make that experience great? And then last year, we started thinking about like, what does it look like long-term once you are able to go back once vaccines came out? And we started thinking about offsites and planning for teams to kind of get social activities together. How do we accommodate for folks who don't want to or cannot work from their actual home? 
There's a bunch of different scenarios for that. So we went with uh, WeWork passes and hubs in places where we have enough people if they want to have a co-working space that's together to kind of recreate that. But the culture is very much remote and distributed. And at the beginning of the pandemic, the entire leadership team at Brex was all in San Francisco. And now it is uh, pretty shorted. We have folks in LA, Miami, New York, Seattle. It's pretty, pretty broad. And I think that also is a force and function to make sure the company can uh, function well when people are not all in the same place. So I think that's that's a big difference. Of like, how do we make that remote first culture work really, really well for the long term? The second aspect I would say has been more about creating teams that are fully autonomous. So one thing is I try to think about removing bottlenecks in the system, whether they're technical or organizational. Uh, typically, your job as, as a manager ends up being removing those bottlenecks to make things move faster as, as things scale. And whenever I get involved in decisions, I'm always like, am I the person that should be making this decision? Like, I'm happy to make a decision now to get things unblocked, but like, if I think about the broader system, should that happen? So for example, if I think about a language choice, should we introduce a language or not? Should we change the language? There was a conversation that we had actually two years ago. We started on Elixir for the back end. And when I first joined Brex, everybody asked me about Elixir and the choices there. And I covered that a little bit in the last episode. And then I said, we should reevaluate that later based on how the language will mature and the different types of bottlenecks they will hit with the language. And then once we realized that like the ecosystem uh, of Elixir is too narrow, we started looking at different language options and we ended up choosing Kotlin. That decision was a decision that I ended up making and I'm comfortable with that because as the CTO, it's reasonable for me to, uh, to make a decision that impacts the entire engineering organization and so core to, to the organization. Uh, but there are many other decisions that come to me mostly because it's the easier way and or where teams might not agree or there's no clear owner. And in those cases, I go look and be like, okay, what prevented someone else from making that decision? And then I go and look at addressing that. And a big part has to do with like how do you structure the organization and how do you set goals for those teams such that they can operate more independently? So I'll say that's two. And somewhat tied to that is how do we manage different functions? And this is something that I don't think many companies do well. A lot of companies are like, well, are you engineering driven or product led or design led or sales led or whatever? And Brex is a very cross-functional environment. Obviously, we have to deal with a lot of regulatory issues. We have to deal with operational issues. And so saying that it's like you're a dollar sign function led ends up minimizing everybody else. And so we're very thoughtful and, and explicit about not being that sort of company. And as far as it comes to, to engineering, we uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about like, how do we help run teams uh, across engineering, product design, data science, and so on. And we really have I've got through variations where initially, like every company, you have like an engineering person and a design, let's say an engineering director, a design director, a product director, a data science director. And that can work well, but everybody was responsible for their own kind of area. And they weren't really running the team together. And then uh, about 18 months ago, helped flip that where I was like, yes, each of you have expertise in different areas and obviously manage the function and help grow people and support people in your function. However, like all of you, whether it's like three, four, because it depends, some things might have design, some things might not, some things might have the other side, some things might not, you end up like you all are responsible together. So for example, one uh, concrete change was how we think about headcount. I used to think about, we used to do headcount across like engineering gets this much. So if you're an engineering director, here's some headcount. If you're a product director, here's your headcount. If you're a design director, here's your headcount. Go nuts. And we flipped it where we said, no, you all as this group get this headcount. 
And you all decide how you allocate it within the different functions. And obviously, if you disagree, feel free to escalate and um, happy to happy to be the arbiter of that. And what that forced and that fixed is making sure that there's the right support and ratios between functions. So there were teams where basically uh, maybe we had too many front-end people and not enough designers or vice versa, where you might have an engineering manager but not a product manager. And they weren't aligned on hiring priorities because everybody was optimizing more for their own function. And the moment we flipped that, it got everybody to feel accountable for everything, all the way from hiring to technical decisions, technical debt, product metrics, uh, design quality, and so on. So I think that's something that's pretty unique. I haven't heard of a lot of companies that not only structure things that way, I think that's more common, but the way we run and we put kind of shared accountability across the leaders for those. And it's allowed us to scale quite a lot through, through this autonomy across different functions without having to go through different kind of organizational models that have other downsides. You mentioned that you have a data science director, and so maybe you don't have as much purview into this, but we've talked about some standardization across the company. How much standardization do you have around data science and ETL and large-scale aggregation operations? Yeah, so the data organization actually is part of my organization. And then data itself is organized in three teams. There's data science teams, data platform teams, uh, and then data science is broken up into machine learning and analytics. And that's something that I think has worked really well by having those uh, teams together. You don't have some of the arguments you have between the parts of data. So we've standardized, we use Airflow, and then get data gets pushed into Snowflake, and then we have Looker on top of that for metrics. And that's been useful to standardize. So we've always had that standardization. It's not something that I brought from the beginning, but we've changed is some of the technology that we use. And I would say by having it closer to engineering and then embedding the data science folks uh, in different parts of the organization, it's helped us with kind of the ETL process where a team owns the underlying model and then it makes them change and then it ends up breaking ETL jobs. And if they don't break them, people don't understand what it is. It's like, okay, what is this new field on this model? So it's helped us kind of have a more basic view because the data scientist that is embedded on a particular team has much more knowledge of the domain that's there and then can kind of bring that knowledge more centrally within the data org. And then you have the kind of career development from having a centralized org and functioning and mobility that you get from being more closely together. So try to kind of find the balance between both worlds. So is has Snowflake been standardized as the place to throw all the data and do those aggregations? Yep. So basically, data gets pulled from SQL through Airflow. We push it into Snowflake, and then Looker sits on top of Snowflake. And so you can run custom queries on Snowflake, which is more than within engineering. And then you have basically all the reporting in the company that's done on Looker on top of that. Right. You know, I'm always curious about Snowflake bills. It's kind of, in some ways, I think, kind of like the new Oracle. Not not in a bad way, but it can be quite costly. Do you get involved in? Because and that that's like an big enterprise deal. I'm sure you have. Do you get involved in the like negotiations with Snowflake to figure out the pricing? So yes, to some extent, as in any technology procurement that we have, whether it's AWS, Snowflake, Looker, Okta, Salesforce, et cetera, et cetera, I'm the ultimate, I ultimately have to approve those. We have different teams that own it. So for example, for Snowflake, we've had folks on the data platform side involved, for AWS folks on the infrastructure side involved. 
in the negotiations. We also have someone on our finance team that works on procurement who helps with contract negotiations. And we use this third-party vendor who also helps us uh, negotiate contracts at larger scale. And so definitely for like high-value contracts, we're pretty involved in negotiations. The thing that I generally look for is there's obviously like scale. Basically, a lot of these contracts, you end up having uh, multi-year contracts and your pricing is determined based on the scale that you have. And so obviously I get involved into thinking about like scale for bricks more broadly. And then from there, there's more of the unit economics. And then generally what I look for when it comes to some of the spend is how does that spend grow relative to our revenue? And so basically, if I think about the processing that we have, how that grows for the business and how does our infrastructure costs grow across the board for all these things, as long as it's flat or ideally goes down and so it doesn't go up, then I think uh, you're, you're in a pretty good place. And it's probably not worth optimizing for that because ultimately you end up spending a lot of time and it slows down your business. But to the extent that you're basically like your costs are going up higher than your business growth, then uh, you have a problem. So either you have a unit of economics problem where you're just paying too much and you have to negotiate a contract. More often than not, though, you have an inefficiency problem where you're just using uh, resources in ways that just don't scale for your business. Uh, and that, those are the harder conversations where you have to reevaluate how you think about that. But in general, like when you're super early stage, I typically tell companies to focus on the architecture and less about on the costs. So as long as uh, your architecture, architecture scales, you can work out the unit economics later. You also have more leverage in negotiations later on. When you're super early stage and you're a small fish, like you're just not going to have a lot of leverage negotiating with someone like AWS or GCP or Snowflake. But as you grow and as you see the growth that you had and it's demonstrated growth, not just hypothetical growth, then they're much more interested in, in negotiating to make sure they get your business and they're sticky with you. And then two, in, general, in terms of amounts, like, yes, your cost might be growing high early on, but if you're talking about thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars, or even hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, when you're a venture-backed company and you have, uh, you've raised uh, tens of millions, it's not the place where you get most leverage. Most I've never seen a company that fails because of that. You fail because you don't have product market fit. As long as it's a scalable architecture, so it's one that you can, if you opt, if you were to optimize the economics, then those costs would be in line to your business growth. Gotcha. Is vendor management a big part of your job? Like negotiating those kinds of things or selecting vendors or is that is i guess the vendor selection is probably more of a lower level thing but yeah maybe you could talk through vendor selection vendor management and if there's any good anecdotes you have recently of vendor selection or vendor management i'd love to know my involvement generally is so we have across the company a policy we thought about how do we actually scale that such that we empower people to make decisions rather than centralize too much and so we're like dog footing our own products for that sort of stuff in general, like any of these vendors uh, that you basically have commitments up to a certain amount of years and dollar amounts, there's different tools that happen at different levels. Some any manager could have, some you need a director, some you might need me to, to approve, and some might have to go to the founders. But in general, like at this point, it mostly stops at each of us for our own functions. For the large ones, my general involvement is less in the selection uh, because I think uh, we've hired really, really smart people. And they have a lot of expertise in those particular areas, so uh, they should be the ones deciding. So obviously, we can do we have RFP processes, and we look at selection, and so on and so forth. 
in general, we also have uh, our legal team, and again, the finance team who's involved in the logistics of it, so we don't have engineering having to spend a lot of time on that. Like, I don't think engineers going back and forth negotiating on, on the price specifically is, is the best use of time. And then similarly, going through contract negotiations and reading contracts and redlining contracts is not something I would necessarily want to have engineers spend time on. And so that process is handled as part of a workflow by, by some of these other functions. And then the final version, again, if I have to approve it because it needs a certain threshold, comes to me. And so I end up reviewing the contract and mostly skimming through it because, again, at that point, it's kind of gone through enough reviews and then signing it or for the company. In terms of anecdotes, I think the, the most interesting one was on Docker recently because Docker went through pricing changes and it changed their pricing model. But it didn't seem like it was really well rolled out uh, because there was still confusion between different people that you talked to at the company. And there's like, there was a lot more back and forth for something that was very obvious, like companies use Docker. So one of the most popular choices of technology, and they had a pretty easy way to kind of roll that out. And I remember spending some time with one of the folks on that counter being like, hey, the fact that we're spending so much time on something that seems very basic, uh, not to trivialize it, but like it's so hard to do everything seems like there's some problem there. Other than that, in general, the process is pretty smooth. The thing that we're always looking for is if there's bottlenecks. Like one of the things for uh, for the procurement team on inside is basically like, what's the end-to-end process? So if I come up with a new vendor, I say, I want to use, let's use Docker as the example, how fast can I get it done? And it's hard to monitor for that because there's obviously in a lot of these vendor negotiations, there's back and forth. So you set some time with the other team, you go back and forth, you have lawyers involved, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's not like purely technology where you can have full control and optimize everything, but we generally tend to focus on what are the things on our end. So we measure uh, how much time it was on our side and how many times it had to bounce around or, or back and forth to try to see if there's a way to optimize it. And then the other one that kind of comes with scaling companies is we created initial thresholds and policy back in probably, I want to say it was 2019 or maybe 2020. So we weren't like super early on where we just didn't have any policy in place, but we weren't, we were probably a few hundred people, a few hundred people. And those thresholds never got updated. So there were times where basically for something that's like relatively small amounts at, at our scale, like I would have to approve it. And again, like I don't mind doing it. It's just like, creates another bottleneck. So in the interest of removing bottlenecks, we ended up changing those. And I was really happy as a company because you hear all these horror stories from companies. It's just like procurement is such a nightmare or this bureaucracy on red tape. And we literally like had a half an hour conversation. Then the next day there was a proposal with like, here's how we're thinking about updating limits, et cetera. And then we rolled it out the week after. So it was really, really streamlined and it kind of helped us scale as we have more management layers and more levels and, and different thresholds for amounts in terms of materiality. So I was quite happy about that. One thing I don't, I don't think we talked about last time was banking integrations. I'd like to know, you obviously don't have to have the constraints of a bank because you don't have to hold large sums of money like a bank, but you have a lot of the features of a bank, like actually sending money and managing credit cards. And there are use cases where you have to closely integrate with the bank. Can you talk through your, I guess, for some of the prototypical banking integration use cases and some of your strategy around how to integrate with banks successfully? Yeah, I think that there's, just like on the credit card side, there's two paths of doing it. The same thing is true on the banking side. So 
there's a path in which you partner with someone and they handle everything for you. And that could be someone like Modern Treasury. That could be someone like a single bank that basically you are the UI layer on top of it, which is what Mercury does and a few other neo banks. And basically like the bank is the one that processes all the money movement, has instructors, has control, et cetera. And again, you, you have a very intuitive presentation layer. The second option is when you go deeper, I guess there's a third option when you become a bank and that's what Square, Square did by getting a banking license. The second option is when you basically have a banking core, you're the one that manages the full funds initiation, you take on uh, more of the risk, and then you work with one or different banks for actually submitting files and getting nacho files processed or wire files, uh, files processed. Now, that's the world that we're in. So basically, Brex is pretty full stack. And then we integrate with the banks on two levels. One, from a licensing perspective. So they basically sponsor Brex. And then we have viability, but as far as the kind of broader environment, the banks are liable for Brex's behavior. And then the second part piece of integration is for actually integrating with like Fedwire and Nacha to actually move money. And they actually hold the fund. So it's not like Brex isn't a bank, so we have a bank account. The funds sit with, with an account within that bank and we manage basically those, uh, those balances. The advantage that we have with the, the choice that we made, obviously like the banking license, is something that's like incredibly complicated from a regular perspective. And it's actually very rare that banks get those. And once you have it, uh, you have a ton of overhead. And so you really, really need to be very thoughtful if, if that's actually worthwhile for, for your business. The first approach is generally the most common and simplest. Again, most of the neo banks end up doing that uh, because it gives you the most fastest speed to market where, yep, you build some UI layer, you integrate with some uh, files and and you're good to go. And you do bring some value for the customers in terms of a simple user experience, which most consumers would care about. I think on the business side, it's a little bit different where one of the things that people love most about Brex is just how well the card, the cash account, the Empower platform, everything works well together, which is really hard to, to have when you have different systems and completely different banks. So if you work with like a card processor, let's say Stripe Fishwing or Marquette on one side, and then you work with a bank on another side and so on and so forth, you can't really tie those together because we've built the infrastructure on both sides and, uh, and more holistically, you can earn rewards both through your card and through cash. You can have a single card that works across. You can make sure that spend management works really well with both, that you can pay bills and things work well together again, both ACH and card and so on and so forth. And so what we've done is we actually have integrations with multiple banks for different scenarios. We've recently started working with Column, which is a bank that's built by one of the Plaid co-founders. And that's been really positive for us in terms of kind of the developer experience that we have internally and the operational load. We also work with JP Morgan, uh, where we have wires. Uh, so a lot of the international wires that we send go through JP Morgan. And then we're also building integrations with different partners in terms of money movement around the world uh, to kind of improve that experience and start having more local payments. So if you're an employee in, let's say, the UK, you don't necessarily want to get reimbursed through a wire because it's not a great experience. It's obviously much more costly. You want to get reimbursed through your local bank account and through your local payment method. And so we're using, uh, we're integrating with a few partners who basically facilitate the money movement there. And so the way I would think about it is similar to, to the card side, you end up having banking core. And so you kind of orchestrate the money movement. You own the presentation layer, so the user experiences is polished. And then you're able to get the leverage across the platform and making things work really well between the different parts of the product. And then you're able to plug in uh, different partners and work more broadly 
to have the best user experience for, for customers in different situations. I guess I'd like to close off with maybe you could give a recent anecdote that kind of illustrates your role as CTO, maybe a firefighting situation or an architectural decision, any anecdote that stands out in terms of describing and articulating what, you know, some of the more important decisions you have to make are. I think one of the, the places where it's much interesting, like I said, I really value creating autonomous independent teams. At the same time, I think there's always a balance between short-term and long-term. And if you optimize for the long-term all the time, then most of the times you end up not having a fair amount of time. And so that doesn't always necessarily mean it's the right answer. And if you optimize always for the short term, obviously you're just going to have a ton of hacks and technical debt, and then eventually you crumble. And so every company tries to find the balance and kind of iterate through it. And one of the interesting things with creating these autonomous organizations that each focus on their own things is exactly to your earlier point, less about infrastructure, which is like which parts are standardized versus not, but more about reusability and platformization. And so a recent example in the Empower platform, we have uh, rules and you can build policies. And these policies can be quite complex. You can say, I want transactional, like let's take the reimbursement over a certain amount to be reviewed by this person's manager. And over another amount, you have another tier of management. And I want for these expenses to have a particular level, because I can, we can pull that from your HR system and so on and so forth. And you can create, like we've built an engine that's pretty flexible. And there was a debate between whether we build that from scratch or we similarly had a risk engine that we basically use for risk rules for our fraud system. And that was similarly kind of a generic engine for rules and you can get them evaluated and you can collect data through them. And obviously there's always this tension because on one hand, you never have a scenario where like everything fits perfectly. So you look at it, and this is the same thing when you have external technologies. You look at something, it's like, oh, buy versus build. I looked at buying the solutions, but none of them were exactly what I want, so I'm going to go build my own. And more often than not, if it's not core to your business, it ends up biting in the long run because you're not going to invest sufficiently enough when it's not, again, core to your business. And so for buy versus build, we've always erred towards like, we should build everything that's core to the business and we should buy it's not core to our business. And so last year we moved, we used to have our own user authentication system. So all the logins, everything were in Brex. And we moved to Okta who offers that as a service and they're going to do a much better job in terms of delivery for 2FA, in terms of more complex rules, in terms of detecting irregular activity than we will because that's not core to our business. And we can make those investments and we can have people build it, but like it's, again, you never end up having the positive ROI relative to the opportunity cost of investing in something that's core to your business. And so internally, you end up having similar debates where the team that worked on Empower was looking at the policy engine that was built for fraud. And they're like, yeah, but it doesn't do the things that we want. So we're going to build our own because we don't really need all those things. And that was a place where I ended up chiming in and literally looking through a code because everybody talks at a very high level of like pros and cons. And so actually going through the code to understand like some of the concerns and then two, making sure that if we were to reuse it, that we have the right support to build whatever the gaps are. And this is the advantage of internal versus external. It's like internally you have more control for how you prioritize things. But it was like, it was really interesting because like on one hand, the Empower team was like, well, if we want to hit all these deadlines, we only need a subset of this and it's easier for us to build rather than take a dependency and have those risks. 
And then the risk team was like, hey, we build this as a piece of platform and infrastructure that can be used more broadly. It just seems wrong for us to just build multiple of these across the company. And no one was wrong. There, was, there were people pros and cons, but that's an example where like, I had to go in and not just kind of decision, but it's like you can make it on the theoretical basis, but actually go and literally look through all the code to understand kind of the state of the world and understand like what decision would you make as an engineer? And it's very hard, I think, to do because I don't write code on a day-to-day basis. In fact, I rarely write code outside of hackathons. And so over time, you get more rusty on that. And so you're not going to make necessarily the best technical decisions but having the ability and having being sharp enough in terms of technology to be able to kind of dig into unnecessary and make these decisions, I think ends up being something that I really value in the CTO role. And when I look at other CTOs at other companies, the best ones tend to be the ones that have found a way to remain involved in technical decisions versus purely the organizational aspects of the role. And then you delegate everything technically. The other thing to that is basically like, how do you make sure that that trickles through your management layer? Because... There used to be a time back in the day when management was all about the organization and people side, but realistically, the best engineering managers are the ones who are still uh, pretty technical and they find the right balance such that they don't have to make the technical decisions for everything. They don't have to write code for everything, but they're able to support people and they're able to know when to dig into and they're able to know when they should make a decision because there's too much debate going on. You need a tiebreaker at some point. And so figuring that out organizationally, not just in terms of the hiring process, but in terms of expectation setting for technicalizations and the balance between like an engineer and a tech lead, a manager, and when different people should jump in and make different decisions and how do they get involved is something that I spent some time towards the end of last year as well. Cool. Well, thanks for such a detailed answer. Well, cause it's been a pleasure having you back on the show. I always enjoy talking to you. As always, same here and look forward to, to chatting more in the future. Likewise.